All right, welcome back to episode 28 of the American Craftsman Podcast. We're uh, we're talking about furniture production during the Victorian age today. Yeah, yeah. where did we leave off last week um, with the, the Victorian's uh, weird sense of humor when it came to uh, greeting cards? Yeah, and speaking of greeting cards, we want to thank our sponsor, Bits and Bits. Talk about that segue. <laughs> that was uh, smooth. <laughs> Uh, bits and bits is our that's our choice for uh, purchasing router bits, and they um, they actually they make some of their own bits. They do aster coating on white side bits, and um, you know they're out in Oregon, great United States company. So somebody that we like to support, I know that. Oh yeah, um, we have a coupon code with them. It's American Craftsman can save you fifteen percent up until uh, April sixteenth. I want to say that's valid until. But, uh, yeah, they, they uh, make a whole slew of bits from eighth-inch to half-inch spiral cutters. And, uh, they do eight, stuff sorry. for CNC's? Yeah, eighth-inch shank to half-inch shank, I should say. Yeah, for CNC's, handheld routers, router tables, uh, any type of routing-type machine that you have, one-thirty-second to half-inch diameter of cut. Um, the Astro coating is a nano coating designed to keep the bit running cooler and prolonging the sharpness of the cutting edge. Uh, I think they're also a Festool dealer. They are. They sell uh, mainly consumables for the Festool routers and dominoes. So you can check them out for that and uh, help support the podcast. Big thanks to Bits and Bits for supporting the show. Definitely. And at that, we'll get into it. What do we got? Well, furniture production during the Victorian age is uh, going to be... Um, the beginning of the end. <laughs> I think that's how we closed the show last time. <laughs> what a craftsman. No, it's, uh, it's really, as previously discussed, industrialization is the biggest driver of American society, affecting all aspects of life and commerce. And, of course, there are benefits to industrialization and um, economy of scale and making things available to um more things available to more people. Yep. But um, when you come at it from our point of view and uh, furniture, the craftsperson, it, it really um, it changes life dramatically. Uh, so when discussing furniture of the period, we start to see the word factory as well as marketing. Mm. Uh, Is that which, when uh, value engineering came about? <laughs> I don't know. That sounds a little bit more <laughs> recent, but uh, although the concept is not recent, I yeah. think um, I think those two words as a put together as a phrase. I remember that when I was uh, doing that uh, estimating job for a commercial GC in the city. That mm -hmm. was that was the big thing they'd come back with. Can you value engineer that? Make it cheaper. That's code for just make it cheaper. Right. Right. Um. So the people of the greatest influence during this time were most often factory owners, not individual craftsmen or designers. So we're really taking a, a, a right turn or a left turn. Yeah, the division of labor. Um, up until this point, we've talked about people, you know, the big names, Heppel White, Sheridan. Um, Nicholas Disbro. Disbro, it starts with him, of course. All these um, really influential designers and builders, the, um, 
the the Newport, uh, Rhode Island design schemes, yep. all these builders following in these footsteps. And now it's it's really becomes um, detached from that. Yeah, I'll I'll read a quote from my favorite author Charles Dickens. Uh, the Industrial Revolution has tended to produce everywhere great urban masses that seem to be increasingly careless of ethical standards. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those that don't know, Dickens. You know, he wrote uh, Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations, Hard Times. Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol, that's a biggie. Yeah. Um, Christmas Cards, Christmas Carol. See the pattern for me? Yeah. But he was he was a big critic of um, the Industrial Revolution and the, the, the climate and conditions it produced, you know, in England where he was uh, living at the time. Uh, one of the most, one of the largest and most prominent manufacturers of the time was Pottier and Stymus. Hmm. Uh, they made furniture in the Neo-Greco Renaissance Revival, Egyptian Revival, and Modern Gothic styles. Now, I never heard of these guys. Me neither. Um, which I suppose is a, a testament to, um, you know, the difference between a factory owner and a craftsperson, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have a copy of uh, the cabinet maker's director over there, and this guy, these guys, Pottier and Stymus, they're they're lost to history. Yeah, so they they were uh, just a couple of guys with some money that put a factory together. <laughs> um, but this company supplied furniture to the president's office and the cabinet room in the White House in 1869, and for the homes of such well-to-do families as the Rockefellers and railway baron Leland Stanford. Hmm. So this this was not uh, just a corner shop. Right. Um, In 1872, they employed 700 men and 50 women. Quite progressive. Yeah. I I wonder how many children. (laughs) Twelve hundred. Yeah. <laughs> Three drawings published in Harper's New Monthly Magazine in 1876, November of 1876, provide evidence that in addition to exclusive furniture for office buildings and rich clients, Pottier and Stymus also produce simpler and cheaper furniture. <laughs> Gee. Um, nonetheless, some of their work can be seen at the Brooklyn Museum, which is not, uh, you know, I'm going to say a, a small thing. You know, Brooklyn Museum has a has quite a collection. Wow. It, this is... Um, but Egyptian-looking to me. Yeah. They did, they did do Egyptian revival, and there you go. It's either in amazing shape or it's a great picture. Yeah. Because it's, like, glowing. It is. It's jumping off the screen, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um. It's a chair, straight back, high back chair, almost um, Jacobean in 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 stance. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of throne like. Um, got this like, what did you say it's teal, aquamarine, yeah, kind of yeah, fabric with a 
Almost like a crest, a royal sort of. Yeah. Like this little kind of checkerboardy. Oh, well, yeah. Actually, those are like little urns, it looks like. Right, right. I mean, it's there's a lot of intricate work there. Yeah. Oh, look at the head there. Yeah, look at these. These are all, they're all tiny urns. Yeah, three rows put together really closely. Yeah, I don't even know how they got the inside row in there. So, well, kids with tiny hands. Yeah. Um, this was all done in a factory. Um, so you got complete division of labor. The 3D. Yeah, know. yeah. Um, you got you know, just one department doing all the embossing. I, I mean, I wonder how much of that is is carved and how much of it is embossed, formed. We started learning about machines that could duplicate parts. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, the final cost would tell us a lot, too. Mm -hmm. Um but that's a lot more ornate than I had imagined it would be. That's That's got to be right out of the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Let's see what one of their cabinets looks like. Wow, again, really ornate. Yeah, marquetry, veneer work, got like a burl. Veneer up here at the top is a little harder to see because it's got that black background. Yeah. There's like a cameo in the center panel. But it's it's in that um, you know classical revival style with, like you said, there's that, all that inlay work and marquetry. Yeah. Um, there's use of uh, like burl veneers and black backgrounds. Yeah, the gilding on these yep. columns. So I think this is a mirror. Oh. They black out the mirror because it. Because of the reflection, right, uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. You're right. So I was a little condescending of Pottier and Stymus. They're in reading. Yeah, they're heavy hitters. <laughs> they are. They they put out some fancy work. I should say the guys working in their factory yes. were heavy hitters, not them. Yeah. Maybe they came up with the design. Maybe. Uh, I. You know, that's a good question. Uh, well, definitely. Um, a good question. Like, what did they have? What did they bring to the table aside from uh, money? Money, yeah. I mean, we know guys like Duncan Fife did that. You know, mm -hmm. Duncan Fife wasn't really making the furniture, um, but he was designing it. Right. He became more of the executive chef. Yep. Um, the White Furniture Company was organized in Mabane, North Carolina in 1881 by brothers William E. and David A. White. The factory was incorporated as the White Rickle Furniture Company on May 9th, 1896. So um, hey, when did people stop using their middle initials? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to start using mine, I think. Was it Francis? <laughs> yeah. Robert F. Barone. <laughs> Doesn't have good, a good ring to it. Good manly. <laughs> That's my communion name. Oh, okay. Yeah. My, my birth given middle name was William. Oh, okay. Yeah. Robert W. Barone. 
WF. Yeah. That's, right. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds substantial. Jeff. <laughs> Jeff J. A. Krug. Right? Don't you, don't you sound more important all of a sudden? Yeah. Esquire. <laughs> yeah. So we got two two companies uh the of note building up in the last half of the eighteen hundreds. In addition to manufacturing window materials, the White Brothers contracted for building jobs. The mass production of building materials eventually led to the standardization of architectural forms throughout the state. Um, for those that don't know um, the history of furniture in the United States, the Carolinas have been big centers of making furniture for a long time, and I guess yeah. this is where it's all starting. I mean, a lot of that stuff moved overseas. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's where, like, uh, was it Ethan Allen, mm -hmm. um, Lane? Uh, was Bassett down there, yeah. too? Um, but a lot of the companies that were sort of natural progressions of these furniture factories that made better stuff, they were all based down there. Yeah. Um, and so... This is interesting to see where it all started. So these guys, they were doing a lot of architectural mill work too. Well, now White Furniture Company's success in this lucrative industry led to the production of fine furniture in 1896, specializing in furnishings for bedrooms and dining rooms, and the company continued to prosper. Uh, always on the cutting edge of technology, White Furniture became one of the first plants in the South to utilize electrically powered machinery. Well, yeah, wow. So we're really starting to get into it. In 1905, the company became the first Southern furniture manufacturer to be awarded a contract with the U.S. government, supplying furniture to military personnel working on the Panama Canal. Wow. It's funny to find out all these links, yeah. you know? Like, it'd be... Like, uh, you know, a local company here getting winning a bid to supply whatever for, uh, you know, a huge building process project, like building the bridge or something like that. A man, a plan, a canal, Panama. <laughs> it's a palindrome. <laughs> ah. Did you, is that, do you remember that from school? A man, a plan, a canal, Panama. Yeah, uh, I don't know where where I remember it from, but yeah, that's a palindrome. Yeah, it's a long one. So eventually, the company, the White and Rickle Company, supplied solid mahogany furniture for the quarters of army officers throughout the United States and the Far East. That's money well spent. Yeah. Wow. Uh, in 1912, White Furniture provided the furnishings for Asheville's famed Grove Park Inn, many of which are still in use. Hmm. That'd be nice to know. It's, it's too bad I didn't include a few pictures there. Yeah. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen what they were doing. Um, during the Jamestown Exposition of 1907... White Furniture received an award as the top manufacturer of furniture in the country and a blue ribbon for best furniture display. 
Eventually, the company became known for its elegant mahogany dining room furnishings. Uh, the pieces produced by White Furniture featured classical designs with attention given to details, such as the selection of fine, kiln-dried woods. Carefully crafted inlays became the company's trademark. Mark, maker's badges and marks. I think we've seen this before, yeah. So, do we see anything there from the White Company? Or J. Horner, J. and J. W. Meeks. Meeks, we know. Yeah. A. Rue, French cabinet maker. Alexander Rue, French cabinet maker. So, maker's marks were part of factory-built stuff. Yeah. I mean... West 23rd Street. You could see it's... 61, 63, 65 West 23rd Street. So it's it's taken up a good chunk of that block. Yeah. Uh, three buildings. Cincinnati. That's the Horner Company. Um, Jack Horner sat in the corner. I wonder how many craftspeople got, like, pushed out of business. Like, let's say the guy who owned the corner hardware store. Did he go to work? At the Home Depot when they came in and put them out of business? Possibility. Like, did a craftsperson get run out of business? Now, maybe never the the top-tier guys. They always probably had their niche. That's clear if you go to Home Depot. Those are not (laughs) top-tier guys. No, but I mean the furniture makers during this industrialization process. Mm -hmm. Like... Not everybody got put out of business. You know, there were some people that uh, hung on. Yeah, I mean, did they headhunt in the beginning? And they were like, we got to get the best carver to come right. work at the factory. And they actually paid him good money. And then, you know, who knows? I don't know how, how they went about it. Did they go for the cheapest guy or did they try and get the best guys? Right. They had to have somebody skilled, yeah. in, like, to lead each department, at least in the onset. Right. Um, Did they, maybe they imported workers, yeah. you know? It it reminds me of uh, the restaurant field in a way and the way it developed. Back um, in the 80s when I worked in the restaurants, basically everybody on the line was, uh, if not a career person, they were there for a longer haul. Like they, you might have started you know, dropping fries or stuff like that, wherever, you know, depending on what the menu was in the place. And then you'd work your way up the line, as it's called, until you were doing sautés and fronting and stuff like that. Um, But as time progressed, what what the restaurant started doing is keeping one guy, one skilled guy, and then backfilling with a lot of really inexpensive immigrant label that, Right. labor that was exploited mm-hmm. uh, working for less than the other guys yep um and you know eventually everybody's just cheap labor yeah now i remember some of the best advice i ever got when i was living out in san francisco the places in hawaii would often advertise for chefs to open up uh restaurants out there hmm. and my, I have cousins that live out in Hawaii. They've been there for decades, since the 70s. And 
I talked to them about it and they said, what they're going to do is they're going to bring you over there and you're going to do all the hard work. You're going to open the restaurant and as you're turning the corner in the like second year, gonna they're going to the get curb. rid of your ass. Yeah. They're going to have you come in as a consultant, basically <laughs> work for half, a, half what a consultant would. Right. He said, so tell them you want five years salary in escrow. Yep. Um, and that'll tell you if they're serious or not. Yeah, you're going to have a contract. <laughs> right. Otherwise, you're going to open their restaurant for them, and then you're going to be stuck in Hawaii with no job. Yeah, you'd be working at the Howard Johnson. <laughs> exactly. Flipping pancakes. <laughs> you're going to become a real beach bum. Um, so that was, that was some great advice. I wonder if um, furniture factories we're doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, sort it of could be, I mean, they had to have somebody to, to open these places. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they did in-house training, you know, they hired people who were unskilled and then trained them mm -hmm. having one, you know, one or a few people who were skilled or, you know, I don't know. Right. Because from the look of that furniture, people had to know what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and if that stuff was mass produced. And, you know, there could have just been efficiencies, you know, where they are paying people a good wage to do, you know, some of these people a good wage to do their work, but, you know, there's so much economy of scale and efficiencies right. built into a factory uh, sort of setup, you know, in terms of like, this piece comes to you, you're doing this one small task really well and it's moving on. So it's more profitable that way versus, you know, just yeah. working by yourself in a shop. Right. Right. Um, you're talking about the benevolent factory owner. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, yeah. If there's more profit, it's good for them. Uh, so let's move on. We had, uh, uh, Potier and Steinman and the white brothers. And now we got Robert J. Horner. Uh, he was a clerk in a curtain store in New York City with a keen business sense and a knowledge of trends in the furniture industry that prompted him to establish R.J. Horner and Company uh, in 1886 hmm. um, on 23rd Street in Lower Manhattan. I know that area pretty well. Horner's marketing strategy was to target the wealthy as well as those of modest means, and it paid off handsomely. So he wasn't Smart just... Man targeting the, the top layer. He probably had a few um, tiers of furniture. Much of what came out of his shop was heavily carved, but it could also be formal and less embellished. It's funny because when we think of carved, we think of time-consuming yeah. and not cheap. Right. Like It would be hard to produce something cost-effective and carved at the same time for us. So this is where Horner... And his uh, marketing paid off. He would display furniture in his building for people to see so they could get inspiration when designing their homes. Mm. So, you know, the fairly well-to-do would come through and they'd see it. So he's he's got showrooms instead of just the catalog. Yeah. I wonder if he's the first to do that. Um, maybe not the first, but he's definitely the guy who survived history. Yeah. Uh, he initially capitalized on America's newfound fascination with the Japanese style by making faux bamboo furniture. 
using maple wood and staining it to make it look like bamboo. Oof. <laughs> ja uh, uh, Chad, you listening? Go ahead and say it. <laughs> <laughs> we invoke the name of our favorite stainer to look like something else. Chad. Yeah. Yeah. Maple stain to look like bamboo. I never heard that one. No, it seems like you'd need some faux painting or something. Cause yeah. It, you know, it's got those, those knuckles on it, right? Mm -hmm. Bamboo does. The line soon expanded to include dining room sets, partners, desks, Hall trees, bookcases, tables, china cabinets, servers, sideboards, parlor sets, clock cases, benches, mirrors, and and more. I mean, I don't know what what's left, but the guy was making and selling everything. Yeah. Um, and this is a feather in his cap. He famously used only the finest mahogany and oak hardwoods for his creations. And maple stained like bamboo. Yeah. <laughs> it seems only asterisks. <laughs> seems a bit of a juxtaposition there, right? Here he is. I guess getting bamboo was probably difficult. Yeah. And maybe um finding people who knew how to work bamboo and all those other things. Yeah. Uh so let's take a look at a Horner glass front cabinet. Let's get a look at this guy's work. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner. All right. Staining his maple to look like bamboo. The thing that pops out to me is the curved glass. Is that is it curved? I was looking at these like gargoyles at the top. Yeah. Little yeah. Griffins. These couple of cherubs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, You see why they black out the mirror now. Oh yeah. So there you go. So this is um, some kind of glass front case, yeah. right? Like and, a curio cabinet almost. Right. And it's got these bow front doors, very simple doors, you know, small style and rail and yep. glass, but they're cur it's curved glass. And it's got a mirror back. And in the mirror, you clearly see the photographer. Sitting on a wheelie chair. And everything that's behind him, all the other curios and pieces of furniture and, and stuff in the background. His the stands. <laughs> it's really, yeah. <laughs> but more more about the furniture. It's really a, a nice dark, rich color, a lot of yeah. carvings. Oh, look at the caryatids over here. Yes, I was searching for that word. Got some like dragons kind of up here, it looks mm -hmm. like. These yeah, griffins. Yeah, a couple of cherubs in this this pediment. So uh, as far as it relates to Victorian furniture that we we looked at in the previous episode, where do you say this fits in? Um it's gotta be like a Renaissance kind of mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit gothic. And you know, I'll agree with you there. It's 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 got like the classical base with these applied uh contrivances these yeah. um i mean the the feet are heads right three heads <laughs> yes which is a little creepy because yeah. you got these faces staring out from below the cabinet and the the faces are all different see this one's kind of like more of oh, like a yeah. grimace this one's like yelling so is this one but the eyes are a little bit different yeah yeah heavier brow 
So a lot of architectural um, influence on those carvings and maybe they're applied carvings. That's going to be my guess. Yeah, I don't know. Think like that. Like I don't think you could apply this curve. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder what it's... Like some egg and dart up here yep. in the freeze. It's interesting. I'd love to get uh, a real eye on that, you know, to see yeah. what's the difference between that and um, a, a crafted piece. Yeah. Because it's, you know, you can't escape it. It's a mass-produced piece. Somewhere, somehow, there's... Another some, one. Yeah, there's a shortcut taken. We yeah. know that. Um. So about Horner's work, there's a thematic aspect to Horner's work that accounts for his success and much-deserved reputation as a top-notch furniture maker of his time, uh, says Neil Alford, who's president and owner of Neil Auction Company in New Orleans, Louisiana. So uh, Horner's reputation's pretty solid. Yeah. He consistently used only the finest materials in woods, oak and mahogany, and he took on motifs that buyers found irresistible. Carved wings, griffins, good call, Jeff, heads, the whole tilt of ornamentation and decoration. Yeah, shotgun blast of... <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. He struck a chord that resonated with people, and he brilliantly used labeling advertising and marketing to his advantage. Um, uh, so if social media was around in his day, he'd be an influencer. He would, he would. Uh, Alford pointed out that while Horner was firmly entrenched in New York, he didn't let his address restrict his outreach to new customers far and wide. Quote, many of Horner's contemporaries limited their marketing radius to the immediate area. But Horner made his name, reputation, and furniture line known to people all up and down the East Coast and even out to the Midwest. He understood that people everywhere wanted quality furniture, and that's what he gave them. Wow. So is there anybody around that we could compare Horner to? Uh, What would you say if I... Compared him to... Thomas uh, Moser? Yes, Moser is the only guy I could think of. Yeah, I'm sure there's other companies that, you know, we're probably just not familiar with because factory-made furniture isn't, you know, what we're looking at very right. often. Um, but, yeah, I mean, definitely a guy like Moser. Um, yeah, I, I would I would say that's a good uh, comparison. So, Mo, uh, Moser, Ho <laughs> Horner opened a few other factories, and his final move was to a new retail store located at 20 West 36th Street in 1912. I'm trying to imagine 20 West 36th Street. That's got to be close to where Macy's is now. Hmm. I think Macy's Herald Square is 34th. Yeah, the Miracle on 34th Street. And 6th. Um... Yeah, that's got to be real close to where Macy's is. Um, and in 1915, Horner merged his business with George Flint, a neighboring furniture manufacturer on the same street in New York. Mm. So 
Horner wasn't just a consummate businessman, marketer, extraordinaire. Yeah. Influencer. Yeah. Content creator. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I wouldn't besmirch him with the, that label. He was known for making some good furniture. Yeah. Um, so this, this is taking an unexpected turn. Yeah. We were going to be all down on the factory guys, but I, I plucked a few cherries from the, from the bunch, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a good one. Alexander Rue. He's another uh, furniture maker of note during this time, this uh, time of um, uh, factories and, and uh, industrialization. It's it's still the 1800s, though. He, he passed away 1886. Uh, he was a French-trained ebeniste, mm. which is a French term for cabinet maker, who emigrated to the U.S. in the 1830s. He opened up a shop in New York City in 1837. His business grew quickly, and by the 1850s, he had 120 craftsmen in his shop. Wow. Could you imagine that? 24 when he opened the shop. It it kind of um, uh, dazzles me because think about how long he was in business. Then he had 120 people here. Yeah. I was toiling away by myself for 15 years. Of course, I had a different uh, business plan. Yeah. But still, I mean, it's still amazing. Yeah. Um. Think a guy comes over from another country, opens up a shop, and he's got 120 craftsmen working for him. Not that long after, yeah, 15 years after, yeah, opening. Um, his shop uh, introduced new, well, then new industrial technologies such as steam-powered saws. Well. Uh, Ruth. Shaker invented. <laughs> what was her name? Betty something or other? Uh, Aunt, yeah. Aunt or Betty. Queen Anne the Shaker. The Shooken. Yeah. Rue specialized in the ornate Rococo revival, but practiced many other styles. His work is highly sought by collectors with larger and more complex pieces fetching large sums. That makes sense. Uh, one of his sideboards was featured in a 2000 ex exhibit at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh, yeah. Now, that's that's We're the big make leaks. it out to the Met. Well, you know, it's it's definitely in the same style as that um uh Poitier and uh what was it? Sim Stim Stimming? Stimon? Ren and Stimpy? Yeah. <laughs> that's all I can think. Stimus? Yeah, Stimus. Something like that. Um, yeah, it kind of has like an an Egyptian kind of feel yeah. to it. What what would you call that? Like a pediment at the top? Yeah. And definitely salute. Um those uh those large cameos at the doors. Yeah. I think a piece of dust fell out of the ceiling and went right in my nose. Jeff's soldiering on through uh one nostril today. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm at the beginning of getting sick from my son and then my wife. Yeah, I'm sure I'm next in that line. 
we just better be better by next Friday. That's yeah, all I can say. That's the, that was the one thing on my mind. I'm like, if I'm sick for going fishing, I'm gonna be pissed. I'm gonna be pissed. You can't you can't fight the the natural course of events. No, I'll be out there no matter what. Yeah. Um, but this is a lot of inlay. You know, some looks like uh, gilt work, right? Yeah, Are those yeah. gold? Um, like a little person up here oh yeah that's definitely like classical it's like either you know greek or roman yeah figure kind of looks like the chick from uh, hercules yes some wheat oh there's a little uh a little romance scene going on here yeah, he's playing was he playing a mandolin or like a little uh a lute a liar yeah and then they're kissing yeah so um Definitely Victorian in its um, symbolism and its motifs there with the romanticism. Yeah. And the classical motifs. Fun feet. Yep. It's kind of like uh, got radius, con concave radius ends and then. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Nice piece. Yeah. Let's see the second roof sideboard. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. This couldn't be more different. Looks like Kaya. Yeah. Now, this is so ornately carved. It's got two full sculptures of carvings of dogs. Yeah, like full-size dogs. <laughs> As like the Like 50-pound dogs. <laughs> with, with the top on top of their heads. Yeah. The apron's probably like six inches thick. All fully carved. The back is, um, what is that in the middle? I mean, all, all. It's a rabbit. It's a, it is a rabbit. That's his ears right there. Some grapes. It's just deep, I think it, I think deep it's a carvings. Rabbit. Yeah, that is a rabbit. Funny, he's like upside down like that. Yeah, I wonder if he's supposed to be like. Uh, well, I guess maybe these are, are like hound dogs. There you go. Um. This is this is insane. Yeah. I I don't even know what to say about this piece. The top is really nice. Looks like mahogany, right? Yeah, light, you know, in comparison to everything else. Um and it's got this cool sort of shape to it, the yeah. way it's relieved in the front like that. It has like a typical broken pediment. Yes. Uh but yeah. but it's just so it's carved so heavily, you know. There's so much ornamentation that it it kind of gets lost. Right, I didn't even recognize the broken pediment because it's it's as if like all these vines and grapes and everything have grown up over it. Yeah. Wow. I guess this is a mirror down here, maybe. Yeah, that they blacked out probably. Jeez. So Alexander Rue um, did indeed work in several styles. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so we'll move on to uh, another influential builder. So the thing that separates, to, in my mind, Rue from the other guys is he started out as a cabinet maker. Mm -hmm. And then sort of, if we use the restaurant analogy again, he opened his own place. 
and you know became the executive chef and employed people in the kitchen to yeah. actually make the food. Yep. To make his his menu. <coughs> Excuse me. So the firm of the Herter brothers, um, we're starting to get into the 1900s now, the end of their career. Yeah. These guys were German immigrants, Gustav and Christian. Again, coming to New York City. And New York is kind of the center, it, it appears, of the Victorian uh, furniture manufacturing. Um, it's no longer in uh, New England, uh, Rhode Island, Boston area. It's definitely moved down. Yeah, I mean, yeah, New York and the Carolinas, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had Duncan Fife before this, who was, you know, definitely from New York. But this is... This is where everything seems to be coming out of yeah. now. Um, the Herder brothers, they began as a furniture and upholstery shop warehouse, but after the Civil War became one of the first American firms, but after the Civil War, comma, became one of the first American firms to provide complete interior decoration services. Mm. All right. Uh, I mean, we don't really talk about the Civil War, but it's one of the biggest events if not the biggest event in the latter half of the 1800s. Oh, yeah, I mean. I mean, it, it broke people and made new millionaires. Yeah. Um, essentially, it destroyed the economy of the South and made all sorts of new wealth in the North. Yeah, and, you know, really it was like a proxy war for money, you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we... Um, I mean, in grade school and even all the way, I don't know what they're teaching in high school now. It's been um, 20 some odd years. And even when I was teaching history, um, it, it was still the oversimplified version of the causes. Yeah, the South wanted slavery and the North didn't want them to have Right, slavery. right. Well, yeah. you know me and my <laughs> somewhat cynical point of view. I was like, follow the money. Yeah. They would say, Mr. B, why did they do this? Follow the money. Um, we digress, but uh, these guys came over and post-Civil War took advantage of um, the, the new market in the North, and that's probably why New York was the, the center. You know, it had yeah. to be a northern city. And yeah, because the South was, you know, it was in shambles. It was, it was, and everybody down there was basically, um, you know, sort of exploiting the old system. Yep. Instead of slaves, now you had, you know, indentured servants and um, tenant farmers and everything. So it was, you know, same thing under a different name. Yep. Uh, well, the herders, uh, with their own design, um, with their own design office and cabinet making and upholstery workshops, they could provide every aspect of interior furnishing, including decorative paneling, mantles, wall and ceiling decoration, pattern floors, carpets, and draperies. So they're they're thinking even bigger. They're the one-stop shop. Yeah, they got their hand in all the pots. They're like the expo of uh, designs 
for um, Home Depot, right? That's what they call that, the Expo Design Center. Is it? Yeah. Um, now, we just clicked on a picture. It's unfortunately a, not a very good picture. It's black and white. It almost looks like a drawing. It looks like but, it might be an actual picture from the 1800s. Yeah. It's um, a drawing room. It's fancy. It's, oh, yeah. I mean, got like this radius tray ceiling with mural. <laughs> Classical motifs for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't. is this a doorway? It, it, it looks like it. It's like about 18 feet high and about 12 feet wide. Framed out by columns. I mean, columns. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at this corner over here. Yeah. So they're providing everything. The carpets, the drapery, the the furniture, um, the wall paneling. Uh, mm. They probably, the only thing they had a contract out for was the guy doing, you know, the Trump Lloyd paintings and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, palatial doesn't even describe. No. Um, that's a that's a good way to describe it, though. Um, give somebody some mental imagery. It really, uh, it, it's like the aristocracy. Yeah, you don't know where else you'd see such a room. The oligarchy. Yes, the American oligarchy. So the herders. Well, they were big players. For real. Um, that was the Vanderbilt drawing room. Huh. I guess any relation to the college? Vanderbilt? I think so. I think everything with their name on it, in especially in this side of the country, yeah, it is them. That's like Carnegie. Yeah. <laughs> or Carnegie. Yeah. Which is how I think you actually say it. Some of the Herder Brothers' most prominent clients included uh, J.P., the P for Pierpont Morgan. Never heard of him. <laughs> Jay Gould and Cyrus McCormack. Uh, millionaires of the day. Yeah. The red room of the White House was furnished with Herder Brothers furniture during the administration of Ulysses S. Grant. What? Uh, several pieces of Herder Brothers furniture remain in the White House, including a center table and a slipper chair. Wow. Um, so let's, we're going to take a look at a center table, which bears the remains of the only known Herder Brothers paper label. Uh, generally, the firm stamped their furniture, which was common practice in the 1800s. Huh. Uh, gilded screen from the Herder Brothers. Oh, very, very Japanese. I was going to say, yeah, really Asian, and I suppose Japanese is where... Um, or maybe Chinese. Is Look that a koi? That. Is that a fish? Uh, I thought it was a rooster. <laughs> yeah, it's a rooster. There's, What's the, there's its eye. Oh, its oh I see. That's a chicken. Uh, or whatever yeah, here's a chicken. Here's a rooster. I get it. I see. Yeah, it I now. thought it was a fish first, too. Yeah. Because there's water back here. But, uh, yeah, very, very um, Asian-inspired center panel. Uh, some birds at the top. Yeah, almost look like robot birds. Yeah, all gilded framework. Um, yeah, you have like the Chippendale, yeah, chi the Chinese Chippendale. That's uh, right. Pattern right there. That's exactly it. 
Um, so this is like a horse, uh, what do they call it, a horse mirror? That, that is. But it's but it's not a mirror. It's a screen. No, it's but a screen, same, yeah. same kind of setup. Well, I guess not really because those had a pivot in the center, but very cool. Yeah, that is pretty nice. I mean, I wonder, I guess this is just a painting. It looks yep. like it has some texture to it. It does. Though. It looks like it's, you know, got dimension. That it's embossed in some way. Yeah, like this looks like something you might see in like a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Not like your neighborhood. Not like the one that has the pictures of the food up no, on the... No, the ones with the red leather seating. Yeah. And I'll have the number three, please. Oh, man. I haven't had Chinese food in so long. Oh. Some good Chinese food. Herder Brothers Cabinet. Let's take a look. I'm. We've this more Asian influence. Yeah. I kind of like this. These are like chrysanthemums. It looks like. Um. You know, like swapping out some of the feet details, which are like animal paws. Yeah. In the, swapping those out and and sort of getting rid of the the flowers. I, I like the proportions and the yeah. and the and the just the the way it it presents itself. Yeah, I could see like making these arches like a bigger radius, so mm -hmm. it's not not such a semicircle. Right. Maybe nix this backsplash. Mm-hmm. Have like a tapered leg. Yeah. That comes yeah. down. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's a it's a sideboard style cabinet. Uh, two doors in the middle, flanked by two open areas on the sides. Yeah, gold leaf here. String inlay everywhere. Yeah, yeah. What do you think that that background is? It's like a. You is, see, yeah. What material is? Do you think uh, that is? It looks like gold leaf. Right, and there's sort of like a pattern. Oh uh, yeah, like it's on top of something. Maybe like leather. Yeah, there, These there's look like some elements, some flowers, like uh, around the drawers and with that string inlay that almost speak of uh, Art Deco in a way. Yeah, yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah, These. yeah. It's like some bird's eye. Mm-hmm. Veneer. Oh, and those are mitre doors. Yeah. That reminds me. I saw on Facebook Marketplace, somebody posted some piece of furniture, and they were like, burl veneer. But it's just like regular. <laughs> I want to message them. Like, it's not burl. It doesn't look anything like burl. Just Google burl, and you'll realize that your furniture does not have any burl veneer in it. So true to the Victorian um, fashion, this is... A mishmash of several styles. Yeah. You can't really pin it down. I like this though. And yeah. much much lighter than the You're right. That's stuff. that is a marked difference. Yeah. Now there you go. That's about as gothic <laughs> as it gets. <clears throat> and this is more Herder Brothers work, so this kind of has that like German Gothic look. Yes. I mean, what what purpose does this he serves. It's a cabinet, isn't it? Let's see what it says. Shallow. Bookcase. It's a bookcase. That's why it's so shallow. Where the books go? 
I guess these are doors behind I guess? those doors. Yeah. Um, how are people supposed to know how smart you are if all your books are behind the doors? It it almost looks like it could be the front of a fancy church. Yeah, Crockett's galore up top. Yes. Uh, in this like the scroll work on the do- yeah. on the doors, the, even just the etching on the glass. It's crazy. I think that might be uh, lead, leaded glass. Yeah. yeah. These. I, I love the guys in the corner. Yeah, they're right <laughs> here too. Oh man. Um. I know. I say it every episode. I, I didn't say it last episode. I skipped an episode. But it's definitely worth it to at some point look some of this stuff up just yeah. to get a gander at it. Um, it's it's kind of spectacular in, in a way. Yeah. And to think that, I don't know, this is probably not one of their mass-produced pieces. This is probably like a one-off kind of thing. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty pretty crazy though. Right. Like these look like candle holders, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Because most places didn't have electricity and then of course no electric light. Wow. Insane. I, I love the 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 bottom half of those top doors. These I, yeah, I really like that. Yeah. I mean um the middle ones not not as much the the outer ones but there's so much detail so many little differences and little spin-offs of the motifs yeah yeah it's it's cool they got one oh, more the example herder boys the herder boys know what they're doing his chair Oh, what happened to this picture? Like, <laughs> this is a cameraman moved right when he was taking the picture. Uh, I think it's just a bad uh, picture. I had it zoomed way in. Yeah, so Herder Brothers chairs. This thing's interesting. It is. Um, these guys. They were unique. They were. Um, on one, uh, there's three chairs. On one, it's, I mean... You wouldn't expect two people to sit in that thing, would you? Or is that just Ooh, I don't know. Just be like a it's like a mini bench. Yeah. Like a one and a half chair. Yeah. So all all the woodwork is gold. Uh it's got a really padded uh seat cushion and, and back. Mm-hmm. Um and uh I don't like that in the middle, it's Example kind of look like they're from the same. Well, they all kind of look like they're from the same family. They borrow that leg detail straight across. Yeah. Right. With that kind of. Um, Burn kind of shape. Yeah. These guys uh, are interesting. The Herder brothers. Yeah. Um, I never heard of them before. And if you're looking it up, uh, making notes, it's Herder, H-E-R-T-E-R. Never heard um, of the Herders. Yeah, so in case my uh, diction isn't uh, coming across, Herter Brothers, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. You know, you type it in, the images will pop up. Oh, yeah. Uh, So we'll get on. I think uh, we're closing out. We got other well-known cabinet makers. Um, 
of the period. We got George Hunzinger, also German by birth, working in New York in the 1860s. And his work is, uh, it shows a, a mastery of Renaissance design vocabulary. Let's take a look at it and see what they mean by that. Whoa. Whoa. That's looking like a Duncan Fife kind of design. That is really, yeah. It's, it's I guess that's maple. Is that carved? maple stained like bamboo? <laughs> it almost looks like a basket. Yes. And it has some lines that almost remind me, and you're going to say I'm crazy, of the Bauhaus chair. I could see that. Um, but the, This right here? Yeah. The seat cushion looks sort of like an unmade bed. Yeah. Like a like a old timey mattress with yeah. no sheet on it. And the framework is 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 faux bamboo. Kind of, yeah, but not really. Right. They they carve in some details to make it look like the bamboo knuckles and then it's like it was inspired by bamboo, but not yes. supposed to be bamboo. Right. It's mock bamboo. And then at every every intersection, there's a cube. Oh, yeah. But that's not, interesting. Not every intersection, but most of them. This is upholstered as well. Yeah. Like an oval back splat. Wow. That is weird. And then look how different the back legs yes, are. Yes, they just, just put these tapered back legs yeah, in. With like a little curve in them. <clears throat> this see. is the Victorian furniture you never knew of. Wow. He's got the same sort of rib cage kind of look there. Here's another guy. Um, Love this like houndstooth kind of fabric. Yeah, he's employing that same cube at the intersection of the joints. Yeah. Hunzinger. Um, what's cool about this stuff is that you might take a tiny little tidbit of this and reinterpret it as inspiration for one of your own designs. Yeah, this almost has the look of like a, like a Welsh chair, kind of how mm -hmm. they have that skinny sort of spindle uh, back with the wider kind of base. Yeah, right. And these just hang They're right just here. hanging there, yeah. It's it's a design element. Yeah, I like this low back and then this big splat. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I'd love to see a side view of this. And, and faces on the arms, right? Look, uh, see yeah. <laughs> yep. Well. Those crazy Victorians. Yeah, I'd love to see more pictures of that. All right, so we see Hunzinger's style really speaking now. Yeah. Um, it, it's less faux bamboo, but more of that, the the rod. It's like, yeah, shape. like you go, if you were to go into like a, a, a boiler room of pipes. Mm -hmm. There you go. Intertwined. Very interesting. Yeah, it says like some sort of crest at the top. Is that a is that an ancient ancient astronaut spaceship? That is. That's a Giorgio Sukolos ancient astronaut airplane. Yeah. They they took it to a lab. The aerodynamics, it's impossible that they could have done this on their own. I agree. This chair would fly. 
makes one have to ask the question. <laughs> Could it be? I don't see any other answer. He he's following through with that um, that cube with the circle for the joints. Yeah. Let's see if the last one has it too. Yeah, Hunzinger. Yeah. Well. Wow. This almost looks liturgical. Yeah, a little bit um, rigid, more sparse. But look at this bulbous cushion. I like that inlay shape there yeah. and that design work. Yeah, I like how it goes. 45s right mm -hmm. there. Look at these little drop finials. Yeah. Wow. Same thing here. Hunzinger is definitely another guy to, to check out. Yeah, I like the shape of these like acorn finials. Mm-hmm. Um, you've probably not seen anything quite like it. No. Uh, Palm tree uh, here. I, like. I even like the detail that like that border around the the seat. Yeah. That right there with those little knuckles or whatever those are. Yeah. It's almost like getting into green and green kind of territory mm -hmm. with the with the ebonized sort of details. Right. It makes you think, you know, possibly he could have influ influenced the Green Brothers. The Green Brothers, you know. I mean, this almost looks like, you know, if you were stranded on an island and you had to lash together pieces of mm -hmm. bamboo to make a chair. This is what... Like, this is what it may look like. Yeah, they had on Gilligan's Island. Yeah. After many years of developing skills. Hunzinger. Yeah, wow. George Hunzinger. Um, Renaissance. So the two Germans really have impressed us. Yeah, they know uh, what they're doing. John Jelliff in Newark, hey. New Jersey, whose designs included sofas and chairs carved with male and female busts. Here's the Jelliff mirror. Would we pick that out as Victorian straight away? Uh, maybe. You know, it's kind of like a Georgian. Mm -hmm. Kind of looks Georgian. You know, they work in all these revival styles. It's... It's so hard to tell. Yeah. This kind of Fibonacci spiral down here. Mm -hmm. What are these little, like little wells, little fonts? Yeah. yeah. Stone here. Got a shell. That's interesting. Definitely. Not as nice as the Hunsaker stuff. No. Uh, there's Daniel Pabst from Philadelphia. Uh, he of the blue ribbon? <laughs> no. He collaborated with architect Frank Furness on many of his high-style pieces to create elaborate and often architectural pieces. Let's check out a Paps bookcase. Ah, that's pretty nice. Yeah. Definitely like the, the proportions. Yeah, I like the way that it's, a, it's, it's three sections with the center kind of proud of the two sides. Yeah. Um, understated, definitely compared to the rest of the work we've been looking at, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of, like, these kind of carvings. Yeah. They just look clunky, and these, like, this looks very Pennsylvania Dutch to me. It, yeah, it does. It almost looks like embossing around that freeze right there, even. Look at that. It's got an email from the Men's Warehouse. Glad that uh, interrupted the podcast. Oh, good. Your suit's ready. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Nice. Nice use of the figure wood down there. 
Uh, Thomas Brooks, a Brooklyn native, go Brooklyn, is known for his extraordinary designs of tables, bedroom suites, and hall stands. Come on, Brooks Bench. Let's see it. Oh. Eh. Eh. <laughs> so we open up the pictures on this really, really nice, deeply tufted, like, brown leather top of this bench. Yeah. And then we pan out, and the woodwork and design is really just... Ugly. Yeah, it's nothing to write home about. It's like something you'd find on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah. All right. What's and it's next? On, and it's on tiny wheels. Oh, God. So in summary, the Victorian era changed furniture making forever. Uh, the Victorian era and the Industrial Revolution played into each other's hands, thus causing Victorian furniture to be the original furniture to be manufactured or mass-produced. Craftsmen no longer had direct contact with the customers. The apprentice system was all but eliminated. Hmm. And here's a quote from Greg Pallast. The purpose of every industrial revolution is to make craft and skills obsolete and thereby make people interchangeable and cheap. Jeez. <laughs> oh, God, that was depressing. Yeah. <laughs> I got... I'm going to close it out with 10 interesting facts about the Victorian era. Oh, yeah. I want more Christmas cards. All right. Number one, they took mourning seriously. Women often wore mourning rings, which were usually made from onyx or jet and featured hair from the deceased person. Some would even bottle their mourning tears. Often women were hired to stand at a bachelor's gravesite usually a blonde woman, to cry inconsolably so that he seemed adored. <laughs> I have to put that in my will. <laughs> I need a bunch of blonde chicks to stand at my, my grave for a couple Number months. Number two. These are in no particular order. Hypnotism, divination, and spiritualism. Spiritualism. I'm getting hungry. It's harder to speak. Were huge. They would attend many events where they could get their future read, speak to the deceased, or be hypnotized. This was a big money industry in this era, which was usually filled with greatly paid actors. Uh, not much has changed in that no. department. Uh, you may have known this, number three. Taxidermy was huge in the Victorian era. Huh. Victorian fact number four. Victorians wore a lot of black. The original goths. Yeah. This is because of the air pollution, mainly from coal. <laughs> if you wore light-colored clothing, it turned gray. Oh, God. Here's another goodie. Number five. Freak shows were big during the Victorian age. Going to a freak show back then is comparable to, go to us going to the movies nowadays. <laughs> oh, my God. If I need a freak show, I'll just go to the food town right there. <laughs> Oh, number six, when somebody passed away, when somebody passed the family, when somebody passed, comma, I, boy, I was lacking with my commas when I wrote this down. When someone passed, the family would often have a photograph taken of the body. Sometimes the family would even pose with the body to make it look alive. One last shot. Yeah. To get a picture. Number seven. 
Gothic novels were at their peak. Dracula and works by Edgar Allan Poe were written during this period. Mm. Number eight. Nevermore. A lady would not wear a skirt that showed her ankles. Modesty boards were made to hide the woman's ankles when she would sit as exposing your ankle was considered too racy. What? So when you sat down and your dress came up, they had to put these boards in front of you so that they couldn't, you couldn't see their ankles. What about their socks? Or is it the, yeah, the ankle with a yeah, sock on yeah. too racy? That gets my blood going. Yeah. Oh, man. We have to cut this short talking about these ankles. Number nine. Corsets of the Victorian era can almost not be worn by someone of today. The corsets would clinch their waist so tightly to around just 16 inches. What? This warped the body structure, causing a large range of medical issues, such as breathing and even trouble in childbirth. 16 inches. That's less than half of my yeah, waist. exactly. And number 10. When women paid calls to someone, that is, went to someone's home to tell them something or to have a chat, it was done in the afternoon. If it was done any sooner, it was called bad manners. You wouldn't stay for long, and if someone else would come while you were there, you would exit gracefully. I, I could get down with that, you know, so there's no poppins. Yeah. And here is a bonus. Tattoos were popular with both criminals and royalty. Hmm. I put insert joke here. <laughs> I'd like to see what a... A Victorian tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> royalty and criminals. That's probably not... Tattoos were not the only link is what I'm yeah. implying. <laughs> Hanging out in the same places. So there you have it. The influential movers and shakers in the furniture industry from the Victorian era. Wow. New York City was big. Yeah. The herders and the Hunsigers, man. Yeah, a lot of a lot of good German workmanship. And yeah. um Alexander Rue from France. Yeah, his stuff was okay. Um and uh, you know, they actually put out some good work. Even those bigger factories, um, though they probably put out a bunch of crap that that didn't survive uh you know their finer work did yeah and they did some nice work well so what are we doing next week next week we have episode 29 interior decoration and design of the victorian period all right yeah so uh you want to help support the podcast you can uh join our patreon you can use our coupon codes at bits and bits and at vesting and uh, keep tuning in. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, see and you girls. next week.